Welcome to Europe Chats with Jim Claus. Jim is TEPSA Secretary-General and former Deputy Director-General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. In Europe Chats, we want to discover what the EU is, what it is not, how it functions, who has the say, and what it can do better. These are the type of questions that we will be asking, and we invite you to submit more questions for Jim to answer through Twitter using the hashtag EuropeChats. Jim, recently I saw you moderating an event with former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. She was confessing that despite of all the briefings she got, and even as somebody relatively intelligent, she still had trouble understanding the European Union in all its complexity. So what is the European Union? Why was it created and how? Miriam, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I think many people are baffled by the EU, not only Mrs. Albright. I sometimes am baffled, but I do think it can be explained, provided you talk about the real thing, not some fantasy dreamt up by the Euro enthusiasts or a Euro nightmare, which is conjured up by Europhobes. I will start with your second question. To understand the EU, you have to have a notion of its history. Um, the idea of doing things radically differently in Europe arose in the context of the post-war situation, mm -hmm. a total cataclysm, together with the First World War, incidentally, which destroyed most of Europe. So the idea was to do something totally new. In this respect, the speech by Robert Schuman, the French minister, on the 9th of May 1950, mm -hmm. was revolutionary. It was not obvious that just five years after the Second World War, the French would offer total reconciliation to France, and not only that, to join their faiths in a new community. This led to the first European treaty, the Paris Treaty, which created the European coal and steel community. Now, this was an interesting move, because the idea to put together the administration of coal and steel made war impossible because those are elements which you need to do war. And even more so because you then accepted to administer this with the help of a supranational body which was called high authority which mm -hmm. later became the commission. Now there is one thing which uh, one has to also understand it. This was a surprising move. For instance, the British government at the time never believed it would happen. But it worked. Mm -hmm. And because it worked, very quickly the six founding members decided to go a step further mm -hmm. and to build a European defence community in order to integrate a rearmed Germany into a European army. Because remember, this was the time when the Cold War started mm -hmm. uh, with the Soviet Union. So a defense community treaty was actually signed this just nine years after the Second World War. But it was a step too far, because the French Assembly could not accept it. They refused to discuss it, so the idea was dropped, which incidentally shows that uh, European integration is not pushed down the throats of people. You know, you can say no. Uh, the leaders, of course, at the time decided that it was worth pursuing European integration. They just changed tack, and they decided to concentrate on economic integration and slow moving steps towards ever closer union of the peoples. That slogan was still uh, was already there at the time. Uh, as far as defense was concerned, henceforth defense, hard security, and all of that would not be dealt with by the community, but in the framework of NATO.
You say that the creation of the European communities was a bit of a revolution. In what sense? How did the communities work? The European Union, or the community at the time, represents a novel way of ensuring cooperation with and integration amongst sovereign member states, who accept to share parts of their sovereignty. The institutional setup invented at the time reflects this uh, kind of approach, because you first have a supranational body, the Commission, which is there to defend the common good, which has a right of initiative, which thinks ahead, which is also the guardian of the treaties. I'll come back to that. The second part, of course, institution is the Council, where the governments of the member states are being represented and decide together. And the third one is an assembly, as it was called at the time. Later, when it was directly elected, it became the European Parliament in 1979. This was to enforce direct uh, legitimacy in the system. And then, of course, there was a very important institution which we should never forget. It was an independent European Court of Justice situated mm -hmm. in Luxembourg, which decides whether someone respects or doesn't respect EU law. Absolutely fundamental question. Now, one thing which is really important and one has to understand is that the member states are the ones who transfer competences to the European mm. Union. The Union cannot decide its own competences. They're being transferred via treaties, which have to be ratified. Now, they do so in varying degrees. In some areas, uh, the com competence of the EU is exclusive. And we can explain what this means a bit later. Uh, in others, it's purely complementary. Mm. You cannot do legislation, but you can do certain things. And then in many, many areas, it is mixed. There's mm. a bit of both. And then you have, of course, also intergovernmental cooperation. For instance, when Maastricht decided to create a pillar on foreign policy, it was a purely intergovernmental uh, move. And uh, that is the way. And that is why when people ask you, what's the union? Is it federal? Mm. Is it confederal? Is it United Nations or what? My answer is, it's none of those things and all of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. It really depends on what you're talking about. If you talk about trade, it's federal. If you talk about defense, it's purely intergovernmental. What exactly are the differences between exclusive competences, mixed competences, and intergovernmental cooperation? I will try to answer this in simple words and by giving a few uh, examples. If you have an exclusive competence, for instance, in trade and agriculture, all the major decisions have to go via Brussels and mm -hmm. via what we call the community method. What does that mean? It means that decisions are taken on the proposal of the Commission, they have to make a proposal, and jointly between the Council and the European Parliament. I say jointly, this is now the case. This took a long way to give this kind of power to the European Parliament. Initially, they were just consultative, but they now have full co-decision powers. Uh, and in those areas, when we talk to the outside world, for instance, in trade, it's the Commission which negotiates. Mm. Then you have mixed competence. You have a bit of both. If you take environment, we decide together and we do legislation on the uh, objectives for mm. carbon neutrality we give ourselves. And there we follow the community method. But if you talk about the energy mix, which energy do you use in the various countries? It's left to the member countries. So some use nuclear and others don't. They're free to do that. We 
jointly join the Paris Convention on trade. But for instance, when there is a financing to be done for developing countries to help them, it's done nationally. So it's mixed competencies. And then we have complementary competencies. For instance, health. We're talking a lot about health right now. Education. We can't do legislation. It's for the member countries to do. But we can do interesting things, like launch an Erasmus program, which is a big success in the European Union. And as I talked about before, I mentioned before, in the area of CFSP, uh, there uh, we work intergovernmentally. Uh, by unanimity, the Commission doesn't have a right of initiative, uh, and it's, uh, the Council then functions in the intergovernmental mode. Yes, that's very interesting that one of the biggest success stories of the European Union, the Erasmus program, is in a field where the Union has actually limited complementary competences. Yes. But Jim, you arrived in Brussels in 1985. Since then, you have had a new career of more than 35 years. You took an active part in the drafting of the Maastricht Treaty in the early 90s. You were head of cabinet of Commission President Jacques Santer. You worked closely on common foreign and security policy with the first high representative Javier Solana. For the last 15 years, you've had an active hand in the drafting of the European Council conclusions. What was your first impression when you discovered the European Union in Brussels? Mary, you make me feel very old. But uh, when I uh, arrived in 1985, it was a very exciting time for a uh, young diplomat. We just had a new president with a very ambitious program, Jacques Delors. Mm -hmm. uh, Spain and Portugal were about to enter the European Union and provide new dynamism. We had a project which united all the member countries, including Britain, completing the single market in all its uh, liberties. Uh, talks were ongoing about a major overhaul, a major reform of the treaties, which led to the single uh, European Act. And uh, in '85, also, five of the founding member countries mm -hmm. decided to abolish all kinds of border controls for people between themselves. But this was done not in a way to divide, it was done with the idea that sooner or later this should be extended to everybody and should enter the treaty. It did enter the treaty. Schengen was integrated in treaty in Amsterdam in 97. Now, in June 89, the European Council decided to call an intergovernmental conference to adopt a European Economic and Monetary Union. Quite revolutionary. There had been an attempt in the 70s with the Werner Plan, which failed. So they come back to that. And this, again, was quite revolutionary. And that was the first part of the Maastricht Treaty. But then something happened, which, of course, uh, you know about. It's the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, and the prospect of reunification. Mm. Now, not everybody at the time was happy about the idea of German reunification. And Chancellor Kohl understood this perfectly well. So for Kohl, it was absolutely vital that this should be done within the framework of a European Union, which should be transformed into a political union. Because he wanted a European Germany, not a German Europe. And this mm -hmm. was the second IGT, which launched political union. And the two together formed the Maastricht Treaty, which was one of the very important treaties in our history. These are all very important developments. How does the European Union of today compare to the one that you found in 1985? The first thing to say is that we started at 6, then 
we became nine in 73, we became in 81 with Greece, we had 10, then 12, then in 95, 15, uh, in 2004, uh, 25, 2007, 27, in 2013 with Croatia, 2028. And unfortunately, after the British vote, we've gone back to 27. But still, mm -hmm. going from 10 to 27 is major and shows the attractiveness of the model. And it also helped us overcome this totally artificial divide in Europe because of the Iron Curtain where half of our European brothers mm. were left outside. Now, in 85, as I mentioned, there was treaty change, single European Act, Maastricht, and then there was a string of treaties leading up to the Lisbon Treaty in 2009. And in a nutshell, uh, with those treaty changes, a certain number of things were changed more competences, for instance, in environment, mm -hmm. in, 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 in various other issues. Um, a revamped legislative processes which led to full co-decision, for instance, more qualified majority voting, a much more complete single market uh, on the four liberties. Although I have to add, it's still not completed. For instance, in services, we still struggle uh, with a single market. A single currency, the euro, which of course now uh, gathers 19 out of the 27 member mm -hmm. states and over time will integrate most of the others too. Uh, a much more structured foreign policy, which as I said before had been left outside initially uh, and with uh, mechanisms, you know, high representative with a military committee and all of those kinds of things which help you run a better foreign policy. And of course the integration of Schengen, mm -hmm. including police cooperation and issues like that into the treaty. There is an important issue we're now discussing a lot. It's the question of a reform of the common migration asylum policy. Very complicated. We're not there yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is also, uh, I think, going to happen. From what you described, it seems that throughout the history of the European Union, there was always tension between how much power is given to supranational institutions and how much power is retained by the national governments. You referred earlier to the European Defence Community, which did not see the daylight in 1954. There were other difficult moments as well. For example, in the 1960s, President de Gaulle boycotted the council meetings for the entire nine months because he was upset about the supranational element of the European communities. How supranational is the European Union today? Or is it mainly the member states that are calling the shots? Who is governing the European Union? As I said at the beginning, uh, it's important to understand that the level of integration varies according to uh, policies. The more intergovernmental the policy, the more power lies with the member states via the Council and the European Council. Uh, that is incidentally why the Commission and the European Parliament are always pushing for communal rights policies, because they want to apply the community method as much as possible because they think it leads to better results and sometimes member countries resist this movement. So there is this tension you mentioned which came out in the 60s when um, President de Gaulle um, called for the French no longer to sit in the council meeting mm. for uh, several months which was quite and it was about powers. It was about supranational powers and it was about the CAP too. Or you had this debate when we did the Maastricht Treaty where Jacques Delors was fighting 
not to have a second, a separate pillar for CFSP, but to integrate it into the union. I think that was not realistic. Then it's not even now, because the choice was not between intergovernmental and the community one uh, foreign policy. It was about an intergovernmental one or not at all. Now, having said all of this, I have to say something about a very important development which took place in 1974. It's the creation of the European Council. Because I described the institutional framework, but in fact, one of the major actors of this was not created by the treaties. It created itself. It's the heads of state and government. Why? Because the union was beginning to develop, they said, it's not possible. We are the only people, politicians, who yeah. do not meet among ourselves. All our ministers do, but we can. Secondly, as the union was developing its trade policy, development policy, and other things, it was impossible to simply say, we have nothing to say about foreign policy. But there was no mandate to do that. So you could do this at the level of the heads of state and government. So it was created de facto in 1974 as an intergovernmental uh, body. And ever since, it has provided guidelines, orientations. It has asked the Commission to do things. It has set deadlines and all of this via, Europe, via its conclusions, you know, adopted by a consensus. All of this was actually, at some stage, recognized in the treaties. And in the Lisbon Treaty, they decided to actually translate this into a new institution, the European Council. But basically, it functions more or less in the same way. The only difference is that now we have a permanent president of the European Council. Um, uh, so uh, this is a very important development, because for me, in my experience, uh, nothing we've done since 1985 was done against the European Council. And a lot was done at the behest of the European on that note, we received a pointy question through Twitter from Mirta, and she asks, I quote, What is the purpose of the Council, except, of course, to block every decent piece of legislation? Yeah, this is a polemical question. I think <laughs> I try to explain that in order to have decisions in the EU, you need the Council, the Parliament and the Commission, and that's the way we do it. And I can reassure her. There is less gridlock in our system than in the American system, for instance. And we do a lot of legislation, a lot of it, in environment, in all kinds of areas, agriculture, trade and all that. So I can reassure her, the Council is not just there to block things. You have explained the roles of EU institutions and the power of member states. With this setup, has the EU struck the right balance? I'm asking because um, recently the European Union lost one of its larger member states, wanting to take back control at the national level. On the other hand, the EU is often criticized for not being ambitious enough, nor capable of solving common problems, for example, in the Eurozone crisis or during the COVID-19 pandemic mm. or in its foreign policy. Is the European Union able to act? And at the same time, does it have the legitimacy to act? The the fact that the UK has decided to leave is a sad event. Uh, there's a lot to be said about it. We should also draw certain lessons from it, but that's not for today. And I'm ready to have another Euro chat to go more into this. Mm -hmm. Let me make a few points. My first point is a very simple one. It is that democracy requires a minimum of complexity. It is a way of protecting the minority. It's a way of ensuring that everybody in the system has a say. Uh, of course, when you talk about a union of 27 sovereign states, the complexity is even a bit higher. 
My second remark is, and it's the mirror image of this, is that dictatorships can afford to write simpler texts and conclusions. I, you know, I, I learned Russian when I was young, and I read Stalin's Constitution of 1936. It was crisp, clear, and short and understandable, but we all know what was behind it. So I do not accept the idea, which you also hear nowadays in the COVID crisis a lot, that dictatorships are just better at doing things. It's simply not true. They can act more quickly, short time, because only one or a few people decide. But the lasting effect of it, I take democracy any time I can. Now, in, in the European Union, you asked the question of the legitimacy. You sometimes hear the term, or often heard the term, the term being used about a democratic deficit. One has to understand that this was a battle cry used by the European Parliament to get more power. And also, some people talk about a democratic deficit and they want more supranational power. But others talk about a democratic deficit because they want less supranational power. So it is a political debate we are having. I do not see a structural uh, democratic deficit. Of course, there are problems with uh, how the way works, uh, things work in, in, in real life. But structurally, I think our institutional framework caters for the fact that we are a union of states and people. And that the various legitimacies, there are various legitimacies, are represented. Don't forget that when the governments take a position in the Council, or in the European Council, they are under the control of the majority in their own national parliaments. So national parliaments are extremely important. My final remark is, uh, in terms of crises, of course, you have a certain tension between efficiency. You have to react very quickly and uh, legitimacy. Uh, in this situation of crisis, governments take over and they have to act very fast. You even sometimes vote special powers for this because otherwise you cannot handle it. And as soon as you can get back to the normal functioning, you do so. In the EU, we don't have one government, one executive. We have many actors and all of that. So it's even a bit more difficult for us to uh, do this. That's why each time there's a crisis, it takes a little time before, under the guidance of the European Council, we get our act together. But I think, on the whole, we've done so. And uh, we have to reinforce our executive capacities. It's something which presently you see in the COVID crisis very much. But is this good enough? Could we not have done better in our reactions to the past crisis? One could get an impression that the Union is doing too little, too late. Um, but you seem to suggest that that's okay because the internal divisions have always been there and because the decision-making in the Union of 27 is inevitably complex. Uh, Miriam, no, it's not okay. Okay, of course. What I wanted to simply say is that there are certain constraints and there are no easy solutions, but you're right to ask this question. Let me be a bit more precise. First of all, I'd like to recall that the big crisis we've had over the last few years uh, subprime crisis, migration crisis, COVID crisis, have all originated outside of the European Union, but they have had a major impact in and on the European Union. Now, uh, it is also true that in some of those instances, the reaction of the Union, for the reasons I've given before, was a bit slow or a bit uh, chaotic. But I dare not imagine what would have happened if we had not had the Euro when there was a subprime crisis. 
or the EU with the migration crisis yeah. and all of that. All of those crises would have happened regardless. COVID was not asking whether there was a union or no union. It was just arriving. And I think the result would have been far worse if we hadn't the union and its level of mm -hmm. integration. Now, uh, the union has, of course, tried to live up to the challenges. And if you look at all each one of those crises, it has done things which it didn't do before. And it has done them in the way of strengthening unity and uh, doing more things centrally. For instance, subprime crisis, uh, massive rescue programs for several countries, the strengthening of fiscal and economic coordination via a new treaty, fiscal compact treaty, which was done outside of the uh, normal treaty framework. Uh, the uh, European Central Bank buying public bonds, for mm. instance. In the migration crisis, we massively strengthened the way we protect our external borders together. We strengthened Frontex, which is our agency to help the member countries doing this. And in the COVID crisis, uh, you will remember last year, uh, massive recovery program of 750 billion, mm. uh, the flexibilization of state aid so that the member countries could inject money, uh, safety nets uh, to help the workers, to help the enterprises and the sovereigns, and of course, uh, keeping the borders open for goods so that uh, you don't see any problem uh, in supermarkets, for instance, in such a crisis. quite. Uh, amazing. I mean, it's quite uh, important to keep free lanes, as the Commission uh, decided to do. Uh, and then, in the end, the Commission took the initiative to push for joint uh, procurement for vaccines. Now, I know that there are many problems there. I still think it was the right thing to do, because I do not think there would have been no problems if everybody had done it on their own. I hope we'll get over this quickly. But there are many lessons to be drawn uh, from this crisis. Yes, I think that's very interesting to consider how things would play out if there was no European Union. Um, if we could go back in time, should things have been done differently? Or would you have done something differently to change the course of the European history? Miriam, this reminds me of a Spanish king of the 13th century who was called Alfonso X, and who is said to have said, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful ideas for the better ordering of the universe. Now, the fact of the matter is that uh, we cannot rewrite history. And actually, in the case of the European integration, I would not like to rewrite history. I think we've done pretty well. Um, um, what we should do is look forward. But while looking forward, draw the experience, draw the lessons, sorry, from what has gone on uh, before. Uh, I give you a few examples. Now, there are a few things which spring to mind. I mentioned the failure of the European defense community, which showed that when you come with a good idea too early, it fails. Or the Werner report, which was a report drawn up in 1970 by the Prime Minister of Luxembourg about creating a single currency. It was absolutely the right idea, but it came too early. And then, of course, we had the oil crisis and all of that. But 20 years later, it was resuscitated and it was done. So, uh, never give up uh, is one of the lessons. Uh, a second thing uh, which comes to mind is, we talked a bit about Brexit and uh, opt-outs and things like that. Uh, I personally tend to believe that maybe we were too generous in offering opt-outs to certain countries. Because in the case of Britain, we stumbled from opt-out 
to opt out, to a final opt out, which was them leaving the European Union. And lastly, there are debates sometimes about foreign policy, uh, whether we should have done this in a more communautaire fashion from the start. There, I am more uh, skeptical. First of all, because of what happened with the rejection of the European defense community, this, the orientation for our framework for security and defense and foreign policy had been set in a different direction, and it still determines our position. And secondly, I think those are really core issues for states where I think they want to get to keep a certain amount of control over it. So uh, I think that uh, in this area, uh, ideally, we could have created something more ambitious, but the reality has been that we had to move slowly and progressively. We are coming to the end of this episode, and we've been talking about why the European Union is what it is. In three to four sentences, what would be your ideal vision of the European Union? A union that cherishes its common values of democracy, rule of law, human rights, but also respects the diversity of our states and peoples, I think is an asset for the European Union. A union that encourages innovation and entrepreneurship, but also provides protection for those who need it. And then, above all, maybe now, a union which holds its own on the global scene, which is a real global actor in a world which will be increasingly dominated by the United States and China. Europe has to find its, face, uh, its place. And in that context, I think it has to work on its uh, strategic autonomy. This could be an interesting uh, debate for one of the future Eurojets. And of course, I want the union that keeps moving ahead. And uh, I think we are at the end of our time. So I want to conclude with a little quote from an American friend of mine, a, dip a former diplomat, who was once asked uh, about the European Union. Say, what can you say about European integration? And she said, it's a bit like a flock of birds swirling in apparently aimless movement. An hour later, they are still swirling half a mile down the road. Thank you, Jim. Next time, let's talk about what's holding these birds together. Thank you. Thank you all for watching our Europe chat. If you liked it, if it intrigued you, or even if it annoyed you, please do like, comment, subscribe, and don't be shy to send in your questions for Jim to answer in the next episode. You can do it via Twitter using the hashtag EuropeChat. See you next time. This podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens programme of the European Union. The European Commission's support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors, and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information.